0: There have been various Mother's Days and Father's Days along the way since I've been here, for which I preached a message that could actually apply to all believers, not just mothers and fathers. But in those sermons, I still sought to make specific application, whether it was Mother's Day or Father's Day. Such is the case today. I'm preaching on a topic that applies to all Christians I'm discussing why believers do all that they do, what Scripture promotes to us as the reason for why we do all that we do. But it's Father's Day, and I do want to say that as fathers, we need to lead out in being examples of what this passage presents. In fact, fathers, if you seek the Lord's help, in being known for what this passage is going to teach us today, then you have accomplished the most important goal you could pursue for the sake of your family. Now, it's a passage we have studied before, so we'll do it again today. It's one that begins at Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. So join me there, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. This passage reminds us of our purpose for living as Christians, which is a very high level topic here this morning, our reason for living. But it presents that, reminds us of that by discussing a very particular issue that was important in the world in which Paul lived when he wrote this. And that issue is the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, as we begin, let's note a few insights about slavery in Paul's day. There are various historical resources and commentaries that tell us all of this. Historians tell us that during this period of time in the Roman Empire, there were about 60 million slaves, which was half of the Roman Empire, 60 million slaves, Slaves were such a huge part of the Roman culture because Roman citizens were considered free, and as free citizens, they considered work beneath their dignity. So because of that, slaves performed almost all of the work, including such categories as medical and teaching and domestic work and farming and so on. Well, though this system of that day was different than what we think of maybe as human trafficking today, still, though it's different, the situation of slaves in general was still not good. There was some level of warmth that existed between some slaves and their masters, but quite often, and in most cases, it was a dehumanizing existence. Slaves were considered basically just tools. Inanimate tools alongside, or animate tools alongside the inanimate uh, tools. Uh, The masters had all authority over their lives, even to the point of death, if the master decided that. Slaves had no rights, they had no rights to property, for example. Well, the question this morning is, what does Paul's teaching on something like that, what does Paul's teaching on slaves and masters have to do with us today? After all, our system of work, our system of employment and economics is different. Well, though the background differs from our circumstances today, there are some timeless principles here that can help the Christian today understand, Christians of all time, understand his or her place as a believer in every context of life. Certainly in the workforce, it applies there, but also in school, fulfilling responsibilities there, or even at home, fulfilling responsibilities there. In other words, we find here a reminder of what our entire Purpose in life is, and what we are to be passionate about as we live in this world. And here's the bottom line Christians are to be characterized by a passionate desire to please and glorify the Lord in every area of life. That's the reason for which we were created. We are to be characterized by a passionate desire. To please and glorify the Lord in every area of life. Now, the instruction here in Colossians about slaves and masters is simply an application of that reality to just this one issue. But the issue becomes for us an illustration of every other situation in our lives family, church, work, relationships, everything. And that's why I'm emphasizing today that fathers especially should see that living out what we find here is the most important legacy that they could live, leave to their children. Now, we need to evaluate ourselves based upon these verses here. And perhaps the best way to do that evaluation is to ask yourself these three questions. Here's question number one for the purpose of each of us evaluating ourselves. Question number one, do I seek to please people or the Lord? Do I seek to please people or the Lord? Let's begin by noting the direct command in verse 22. You'll see it there, a very direct command, Obey those who are your masters on earth. Now, this idea of submitting to authority is not just found here. It is something woven throughout Scripture, the need to submit to authority. And in the slave-master relationship, the master is the one who was in the position of authority, so the slave needed to be obedient. But it's the next statement that gets to the heart of our first evaluation question this morning. Verse 22 continues, "...not with external service." As those who merely please men. Now, that term for external service, you could translate it literally, I service. It's a combination of two words put together. It's the Greek word for I, E Y E, I, the Greek word ophthal, and you can hear where we get our word ophthalmology, for instance, from that. It's a combination of that word and the word for slave that many of us are familiar with, Doulos. So together, it means an eye slave, a visual slave. Interesting, it's not a word that's found before Paul and his writings. So it's very possible, even likely, that Paul coined uh, this term uh, to use here. In any case, it can be used to refer to the idea of a slave working diligently when the master's eye is upon them, but slacking then at other times. But it can also refer to the practice of choosing to work hard and to do a good job, but for the purpose of drawing attention to oneself in order to impress. Well, obviously, practices like that were not limited to the first century. People do the same things today. So this is a basic question to consider in any endeavor of life, whether we do what we are doing to please people or the Lord. No doubt the default setting that we are born with is to be people pleasers. Now, the term there, please men, that refers to this uh, attempt to impress others or please others, even if it means sacrificing principles along the way in the process. For example, at work, the motivation to do what is right may actually be because I want to impress. I want the intention. I, I want to get a pat on the back. I want a raise. I want a promotion. I'm not saying raises and promotions are bad, but I'm just talking about the heart motivation. And for some who are in that way of thinking, their efforts would even involve doing underhanded things in order to reach their goal. They might walk over other people, as we say, to look good in the eyes of an employer. So it is amazing that there really are no new tricks under the sun when it comes to sinful, natural behavior. Even ancient slaves understood what it meant uh, to work hard and to look busy when the master was looking, you know, to turn the charm on, we might say, and then slack off when the master was not around. Well, what's the problem, whether it was the first century or the present? It's this sin that the Bible calls uh, fear of man it 's this sin of seeking to please people rather than pleasing the Lord. The fear of man is caring more about what people think than what God thinks, but Christians are called to be different than that. we are the ones who have been rescued out of the domain of darkness we 're the ones who have been set aside for Christ and him alone. so we are to make that reality visible to the world that we belong to Him, that Christ loves us, and that we love Him, and that we desire to live our lives in light of what a previous verse says. Look back at verse 17, so it's a few verses back. We desire to live our lives in light of this, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or do, or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I can put it another way. Christians are to be single-minded and that's the literal meaning of the next phrase in our verse. Look at verse 22 again. It says, but with sincerity of heart. That means to be single minded. The Christian is to be so focused on, so intent on pleasing the Lord above everything else, pleasing the Lord in all he does is that he pursues his work, his activity diligently. But it's not ultimately just to win the favor of somebody else. It's not. That is a primary reason, but the primary reason is to honor Christ with all of his efforts and all his or her accomplishments. You know, you think about this and you wonder, why is God so concerned about that? Why does the Bible make such a big deal out of the fear of man? In Proverbs, it says the fear of man brings a trap, a snare. Galatians 1, Paul says you cannot serve Christ and be a man pleaser. The two just don't mix. Why? It's a theological issue. It's the issue of sovereignty. This kind of sin is giving sovereignty to someone else besides God. God is the one who is sovereign. He has all rights. In other words, instead of realizing that that's God's right and that God is in control, this person resorts to whatever techniques, whatever words, whatever cunning and deceitful actions that might be necessary in order to gain favor in the eyes of someone else, in the eyes of an earthly boss, for example. Of course, the proper mindset, caring more about what God thinks than people think, that's all going to depend on whether or not we have a right view of the Lord. We are to fear the Lord. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, It's the beginning of, of knowledge. It is our view of the Lord, understanding who He is, the way He's presented in Scripture, and having a reverence for Him. In the case of a slave, that slave might very well fear their master, and we understand why on the human level, because the master had the power of life and death. The master had the power to, sl- to sell a slave into some other type of servitude. But Paul here is writing to believing slaves that were in this church, Bel- believing slaves and telling them, don't ultimately fear the master. Don't ultimately live with an attitude that an earthly master has, uh, is sovereign over everything. Instead, verse 22 says, we are to... Live with sincerity of heart. Look at the end phrase, fearing the Lord, fearing the Lord. That word fear refers to an attitude of reverence. We are to cultivate, cultivate a sense, an attitude of reverence, of awe, A-W-E, of the Lord. It's not conveying this idea of a terror, you know, sort of cowering over in the corner because you're, you're trembling at the thought of, of something terrible that could happen. No, the term instead implies that we are to have this proper view of the Lord. We are to think rightly of him, and we're thinking rightly of him if we are understanding he is the one who is ultimately sovereign. He is the one who has all power over our lives. He is the one to whom we will ultimately give an account. And along with that reverence for God, thinking rightly includes this. We are to remember that Christ is the one that took all of God's wrath, all of God's anger, so that there is none of that left for his people, and that in Christ we find grace, we find rest. That fact also fuels our understanding that we have no reason then to be intimidated by other people. We have found the truth about God. He is the one ultimately in control of all things. And we have found the truth about salvation that we have total acceptance with that God in Christ. Now, back to our passage. Can you imagine how revolutionary this was for the slaves hearing this at that time? They were intimidated by their masters. And yet now they were to have such a grasp of the Lord's powerful sovereignty over their lives and their acceptance in Christ that they were not then fearing men. They were replacing that sin of the fear of man with a deep reverence for the Lord. And that leads then to wanting to please Him. That leads to wanting not to impress other people and even doing it, living a, a holy life not to impress the Lord, but to please Him and to show the world that we love Him. So that's a very important evaluation question. Do I seek to please people or the Lord? Question number two, do I see everything I do as an opportunity to serve the Lord? emphasis on everything. Do I see everything I do as an opportunity to serve the Lord? This just takes our first point a step further. Yes, we are to consciously see that we're serving the Lord, not man, but this must be our thinking in whatever our vocation might be and in whatever activity we are involved in, wherever we go, whatever we do. Now, look at verse 22 again. I skipped over a phrase intentionally right at the beginning, in all things, in all things. Now, of course, the apostle was not encouraging submission on the part of the slaves or anyone who's not in authority, submission to immoral, unbiblical commands. But except for that exception, the term is all-encompassing. In all things does mean in all things. So there's no distinction between the type of task that you're involved in. There's no distinction between uh, tasks that are pleasant and tasks that you don't care for that are unpleasant. No distinction between tasks that, that just really stir you up and are challenging and tasks that are dull. No distinction between interesting activities and something that's menial. No, it is obedience in Everything. And then look at verse 23, there is that comprehensive phrase there then in verse 23 that goes along with this, whatever you do. So that makes the point clear. Now, people might hear that and go, well, that, that's easy for a pastor. I mean, you know, they've got a vocation that's directly related to gospel ministry. I sure hope you, Carrie, and our elders are asking yourself these questions. Yes, we are. How can you do this if your work or your activity you're involved in seems to have nothing directly to do with the gospel? Well, the answer is that you must recognize something about the sovereignty of God again, the providence of God in your life. You are doing what you're doing by the good providence of the Lord. Whatever you're involved in, whatever your job is, whatever you're doing, that was all part of a God's sovereignty because it happened. Whatever you're involved in now is God's will for your life at this moment. So that's true whether it means you're working retail or you're performing brain surgery tomorrow. Or you're laying bricks, or you're still in school, going to school, or you're an accountant crunching numbers, or you're filing paperwork, or you're doing physical labor, or you're working to take care of your home and your family. Even if you're enjoying some hobby, it's in the whatever. Whether at home, school, play, sports, we are to pursue the endeavor that we're in, that we're doing, we're to pursue it with diligence. We're to pursue it with excellence. Pleasing the Lord in that activity. So make sure you don't develop this false dichotomy and you create some broad difference between what uh, some call secular and what some call sacred. This text, along with countless others, elevates all work to a totally different level. All work something that is the means of growing spiritually that God uses, and it's a means that God is giving you to glorify Him. I like what Kent Hughes says about this. There is no secular, sacred distinction, for all honest work done for the Lord is sacred. That means nothing is meaningless. Nothing is trivial in that sense. All activity can be done for the Lord. And yet, if we're honest, we'll admit that's not our, at, our attitude all the time to different things we're doing. Maybe even different tasks that you have to do at your job or certain chores around the home. We don't necessarily automatically think like this, that, wow, this is an incredible opportunity for me to please the Lord. You know, a lot of times we think, that's oh, just a job I have to go to It's just a task I have to complete, and I want to hurry up and get through with it so I can get on to something more interesting, something more important, something more fun. So Paul is pointing out that when it's done for the Lord, it's not meaningless. It's no longer just a job. It's not just a task, regardless of what it is. Again, hear this through the grid of first century slaves. I mean, they had little thought of doing some of their tasks and some of the things they were made to do with reference to Christ. But that's the call of this text. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. That term heartily literally means from the soul. You could translate it, uh, do it energetically. You could translate it, do it cheerfully. So it carries the idea of not just going about things in an idle manner, not doing things slothfully, but you are going to approach this and you're going to do it uh, with a sense of enthusiasm. And boy, this is where Christians have an incredible opportunity to be different than unbelievers in the workplace. Listen. Listen. Most people today are not satisfied with their jobs. Most people. This is common. People complaining at work. Complaining about what's required of them. Complaining about what they're being paid or not paid. Complaining about the conditions and so forth. So you interject somebody into an environment like that who's working cheerfully and diligently and enthusiastically with a sense of gratitude to the Lord that's out of the ordinary. That stands out. That's why I'm saying this is an opportunity to attract attention to the power of the gospel in your life. Whatever. And the term whatever includes even the most menial job. It includes even things that you do that nobody else ever even sees. You know, there's a companion thought to this in the Old Testament. It's Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So that's how the Christian ought to approach every day's activities and labors with a different attitude than someone who's not saved. An attitude that says, no, there's no distinction between secular and sacred. All of life is sacred. All work can be honoring to Christ. Martin Luther said this, your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessings on you. This praise and honoring of work should be inscribed on all tools and on the forehead and the faces that sweat from toiling. Just write that on your forehead. Again, Christians ought to be the best workers. In school, Christians ought to be the best students, most diligent at least. But it's sadly that's not what's true out there many times. The testimony of many Christians at work or at school is just the opposite of all this. And here we are, we're the ones who ought to be the most dependable. We ought to be setting the standard for what integrity looks like, the best in integrity. And if we're not faithful, hard, diligent workers, then we're sinning. So back to fathers. Fathers, model this for your children. I mean, Christ is honored when you work diligently for His glory, provide for your family. Again, every activity becomes an act of of worship and praise, whether it's, it's in the arena of marriage or at work or here at church or in the neighborhood, every category of life. And students, again, I just want to emphasize it. This way of thinking ought to spill over into your study habits. You're to do your work for class as for the Lord's for the Lord. And whether you're in school or working, whatever, there are going to be those moments when you don't want to give your best. When that happens, think of this text. Think of this exhortation to labor with a view to whatever you're doing, being, you're offering to the Lord at that moment. So, do I seek to please people or the Lord? Do I, seek, do I see everything I do as an opportunity to serve the Lord? Question number three. Do I live mindful of eternity with the Lord? Do I live mindful of eternity with the Lord? Now, slaves of that day, they did get paid at some level, but the reality was most many of the masters were cheapskates, as we would call them. They would find any kind of loophole, uh, any reason at all to keep from paying a a slave a fair wage, and as slaves, they had no rights. They had no recourse for being mistreated. They're totally, they were totally at the mercy of their masters in all of this. But not the Christian slave. Paul is saying, yeah, the Christian slave is to have a different view. The Christian slave is not ultimately at the mercy of any master's whims and desires. The slave could be assured that the Lord one day, would reward that slave's diligence in their work, and that thought is expressed in verse twenty four knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Let's talk about retirement for a moment when you're young, you don't think anything about it, and as you get older you you think more about it, and you you know you're supposed to think about you know you're financially going to be taken care of and so on and so forth. And, so forth. You learn along the way that maybe you should have made different choices or you learn that your retirement program is not that good and so on and so forth. I don't know what category you're in, but I will say this. If you think your retirement program is not so great, think of first century slaves. They had nothing, nothing to look forward to. By law, when I say they have no rights, that included by law, they were not allowed to even receive an inheritance from their family. In fact, when they had served the usefulness of their masters, they could be removed, they could be sold. So while they labored diligently, their earthly master might cheat them all along the way and offer them absolutely no assurance that they'd be provided for in the future at all. They're just done with them. But this passage promises a different kind of insurance that they could rest in. That the assurance for Christian slaves came in knowing that there was a guaranteed reward ahead, a reward from the Lord. And that term, receive, that Paul uses means to receive something in full, full reward. When? Next payday, I hope. Next bonus time. Maybe not in this life at all, but definitely in the life to come. And this same attitude is important for us in our own day. We are to live with this mindset of eternity with the Lord, especially when it comes to something like our futures. I mean, if our dependence is just kind of totally on some company or something else earthly here rather than the Lord, listen, the reality of it is we can be gravely disappointed. Companies can collapse. Governments can collapse in contrast to all that, the Lord does not. The Lord is eternal. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to plan for the future. I'm not suggesting that we should not plan, that we should not uh, seek, you know, take advantage of company benefits and retirement plans and all that. That's all wise to do. In fact, making those kind of plans and taking advantage of those things demonstrates prudence on our part to take care of needs here in this world and so forth, but we're talking about a mindset that's above that, a mindset that is to characterize every aspect of our lives. We're to live, let me say it this way, we're to live with a view that the Lord is ultimately our provider. And that's especially hard to do when you're young, isn't it? The younger you are, to live with an eternal mindset, it's hard to do when you're young when you're young, to live life remembering that this world is not all there is. (laughs) And there's something else ultimately more important. It's hard. But nevertheless, for all of us, as Paul writes in Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21, we are citizens of heaven. This is not even our home. So we must remember that though our working is now and our sowing is now, so to speak, the reward, the reaping is in the hereafter ultimately. And it's also important to remember this, that when that point comes, the Lord is an impartial judge. Look at verse 25. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Slaves might very well be tempted to get vengeance To get even on their own with a cheapskate master. But they didn't need to do that. They didn't need to have that vengeful spirit for being treated unfairly. The Lord would ultimately exercise righteous vengeance, not only on their behalf, but everyone's behalf, all of his people. And when he does it, as I said, he's impartial. He's no respecter of persons, he's no respecter of position. As we find in chapter 4, verse 1, this is one of those places in Scripture where there is an unfortunate chapter break because chapter 4, verse 1 goes with our section. Always keep that in mind. You know, when the writers wrote, they were not putting verse numbers on the verses and they were not distinguishing chapters. Paul didn't end chapter 3 and say, whew, worn out, need some coffee, take a break, and then come back and pick up a chapter 4. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 goes with this. God's no respecter of persons. Masters, he's saying something to the other side. Grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Apply it to today. Employers, I mean, if employers recognize that they too answer to God for the way they conduct themselves with their employees, the way they handle them, the way they speak to them, the way they do or do not take care of them. They will think differently. They'll care about what happens to these workers. They'll be concerned that they're paid properly, and they'll be concerned about their families and their physical health and so forth. And in the broadest sense, you can apply this to anyone in an authority position, not just an employer. The principle applies to parents. You're in an authority position. Government officials, principals at a school, teachers, pastors, elders. Ultimately, there is no advantage before God for being in a position of authority or not. There is no advantage before God of being a master or a slave, an employer or an employee, Both are sinners, and both need the redemptive work of Christ. Listen, you can be a company president or CEO, or be the newest hire there, or the company janitor. All have the same need to know Christ. If you think of it this way, the gospel levels the field, doesn't it? The gospel defines equality and worth and dignity and personhood differently than the world does. So this verse that we've read served as a warning, but a warning for both sides, the master and the slave. The master was to be careful to take care of his responsibilities to his slaves or else face the master in judgment. The slave was not to assume some other vengeful posture. They were not to be angry or bitter toward those who treated them harshly. Why? Because they knew the Lord would vindicate them one day. So yes, justifying wrongs in employment situations is a sin, and yet it's common. People think they're not being adequately paid or or perhaps some benefits were changed or taken away, or maybe they were forced to work in a, in a difficult situation, and so they conclude, well, you know what, I've got some things coming to me. Since the employer didn't take care of some things, I'll just take care of it myself. And so they fudge on the time clock, or they permanently borrow some things from the company, or they take extra long breaks, or if they're at school, they cheat all with a sense of vindication. So our text is a warning that even for those who believe they are being treated unfairly, it is never justifiable to do something wrong, to make up for it. That's the Lord's responsibility. He will deal without partiality toward those who perpetuate anything wrong. So to summarize all this, whether one's a slave or a master, both are to carry out their duties with a consciousness that they're doing it unto the Lord and that there's a future in eternity where all wrongs will be righted and faithfulness to the Lord will be rewarded. Let me give you the core thought of the whole passage. Something else I skipped over intentionally. It's at the end of verse 24. There's the key thought in the whole passage. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's it. That's the purpose for which we were created, and that's the purpose for which we are to be passionately driven. All of life is to be lived under the submission to the Lordship of Christ, seeking to please Him, walking with Him. So again, fathers, in a unique way, I'm saying this to you, we should lead the way in living with this kind of powerful passion. A passion with a purpose. Obviously, it applies to all of us. And you know this, the the Greek word doulos that I mentioned. It's not just used in passages like this about literal slaves. It's that term used for all believers, followers of Christ. We are all slaves, douloi, slaves of Jesus. And in our slavery to him, we are always slaves. On duty. So it doesn't matter whether we're at our jobs or not at our jobs, whether we're at home or church or in a store shopping, in some sort of business dealing, talking with our neighbors, so forth. We're always on duty as his slave. And it's a wonderful thing to be his slave. It's a delight to be a slave of the Lord. It's not a drudgery, Serving Christ as his slave is what brings us the most joy. So we live our lives as his slave, passionately driven to want to please him and glorify him. People say, yeah, but you know, I'm just so busy. Listen, the bottom line on that is this, we always have enough time, we always have enough energy, and we always have enough money for the things about which we are passionate. So the real question is, are we passionate about the things that are most important? Are you passionate about the things of the Lord? Are you passionate about knowing and loving and serving and obeying and speaking about Christ? That's the passion that God demands from us. I love the way Paul wrote it in another verse. It's Romans 12, verse 11. He put it this way in Romans 12, 11, that we are to not be lagging behind as we live our lives, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit. That means boiling over, passionate. Doing what? Serving the Lord, Romans twelve eleven. So there's an evaluation question to conclude with. What, what drives you? What are you passionate about? We will accomplish what drives us. So if we're apathetic about spiritual things, then it's not a behavior problem. It's a heart issue. So if you've lost your passion for Christ, get it back. Confess and repent of the coldness that's there. It starts there. That's how you you seek to return to your first love, as Revelation 2 speaks of. Even praying to the Lord, help me have a passion for things that count. Lord, help me starve the loves that are taking that passion away. Help me starve the love for some pet sins that I nourish. Help me starve the love for worldliness. And then live your life daily, reminding yourself daily of the gospel. Remind yourself daily you did nothing to be saved. And you can do nothing to keep yourself saved. So we're not trying to live all this out to earn God's pleasure. We're not trying to, you know, to get His attention and impress Him with our Bible study and our prayer and our church attendance and giving money and our holiness and so forth. We're not trying to make up for some lost time or sins. You'd never be able to make up for them because you're you're more sinful than you realize anyway. But reminding yourself of the daily of the gospel is not focusing on that. It's reminding yourself that you are far more accepted than you realize. In Christ, completely accepted in Christ. So rest in that reality and seek with joy to pursue him with passion. Making choices to display his love for you and your love for him. Making small habits even of thinking like we've talked about today. Small habits of seeing everything through the grid of these questions and everything through the grid of the gospel. Choosing to associate with passionate people because it rubs off. Being around people who love Christ helps you, prompts you to love Christ more. So again, fathers, let me just boil all that down with some supplemental thoughts for you about all this. This is all high-level stuff. And as I've been saying, fathers, being passionate about Christ, that is the most important thing you can do for your family. It's the most important legacy you can leave them. The home needs spiritually-minded fathers. The church needs spiritually-minded fathers. But I get it's high level. Let's flesh it out. How does it connect to fathering in some practical ways? Well, you flesh it out based on what children need. So let me tell you what children need. I got some bullet points, about 100, maybe 9 or 10. Here's what children need. Here's how you flesh it out based on what they need. Let's start with work. They need to see a work ethic in their father, a work ethic that pleases the Lord. Children ought to be able to respect their fathers for their hard work in providing for their families. They need to see their fathers being consistent in their battle against their own personal sin in the flesh. You do battle the flesh. Be honest about that. They just need to see their fathers being consistent in the battle. They need fathers who take seriously what Ephesians 6 4 says to parents this obligation of instructing the children and disciplining the children, both sides of it. They need fathers who are taking that seriously out of a motivation to please Christ. They need fathers who are willing to make time for the family. It takes time. They need a father who loves and respects their mother. They need a father who respects them as well as children. And that respect, by the way, that respect includes the understanding, if you have more than one child, understanding that each child is different. That's part of the respect you should give them. They're each different. And that respect includes patiently letting children be children, even as you're helping them mature. It's a respect for them as children. So respect their mother, respect them. They need a father who loves them unconditionally. In other words, they need to know as the years progress that your love for them is based absolutely upon nothing that they do or don't do. Nothing they do or don't do will ever diminish your love for them. They need to be told that and know that. They need a father father who's approachable, a father they can talk to, a father who'll talk to them, and a father who listens. All that's part of being approachable. You want your children to feel like they can tell you anything. They need a father characterized by compassion. They need a father who never gives up on them, and that includes persevering and praying for them that you never stop. Lastly, they need fathers who love the church, who faithfully serve in the church, who are consistent in bringing their children to church. It's those kind of things, fathers, are the way that you, you flesh out this passionate desire of serving the Lord being focused on Christ and single-minded, because that's your most important mission field. Your home, your family, children ultimately then aren't a distraction, they're a mission field. There's more things I could have said you could add, I'm sure. Listen, I understand the truth is there is nothing easy about being a father, especially in this world, but the Lord is long-suffering with us, and in dependence on Him, we can leave the legacy of being a faithful, loving father, a father who pursues and knows Christ. That's the legacy. Even if the children don't agree with it or recognize it, God knows, and that's what counts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this reminder as a father and as a believer. Well, what we're supposed to live our lives being passionate about, what is most important? So, Lord, help us to be honest with these questions as we ponder them, whether we're pleasing people as a habit or we're seeking to please the Lord or whether we're dichotomizing our lives in some way, thinking some things are spiritual and some are not. Help us guard against that, but Lord, help us for sure live with a mindset that this is not all there is. We're headed for eternity. Lord, I do pray for the fathers here. As I said, I know it's not easy. It's work. I pray, and I thank you for the fathers that are here. I pray that you would enable them to live this out, this single-mindedness of loving Christ most of all. I do pray for anyone here who's not. a true believer, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to the place of seeing that they they don't know Christ, that Christ is not their Lord. They're not even on this path of seeking to please Him, because they can't, because they don't know Him. Open their hearts to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, so they can then pursue this with passion, loving and serving the Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Carrie, for not only...